would you do if you were elected about Aleppo? About Aleppo. And what is Aleppo? You're kidding. No. Aleppo is in Syria. Hello, subscribers. It's your mid-show, mid-week premium episode, episode 39. I am Will Meneker. Joining me as always, Matt Christman. Hello. Felix Peterman. Hey, everybody. And, by God, is that is that Derek Davison's music? Hey, guys. Uh, does, can anybody <laughs> tell me what the deal is with this Aleppo um, thing? Oh, no, man. No, you, uh, it's dog food, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, well, that's what I thought, but everybody's making a big deal out of it, and I don't, so, I don't understand. So, a uh, little, little context to the story. Uh, for the past few weeks, uh, journalists who absolutely know what Aleppo is have been posting pictures of Aleppo and being like, we can't say we didn't know. Uh, not really suggesting anything, but if you've ever seen the movie Forgetting Sarah Marshall... Russell Brand's character has a song called We've Gotta Do Something and it's kind of, kind of what it reminds me of but anyway uh, all the journalists think they're really smart because for the, they've spent like the past month being like we gotta do something about Aleppo uh, and so they asked Gary Johnson who is probably in the middle of a monologue about raw milk and uh, you know uh, vaping regulations basically uh, what should we do about Aleppo and Johnson, to his credit, instead of like doing, you know, making some bullshit answer, goes, "What is Aleppo?" Because you know, why would he know what Aleppo is? He's a freak. Uh, so <laughs> all these, all these assholes who found out about Aleppo like last month are like, "Can you believe this? Really? 2016? Where's the reset button?" But anyway, New York Times <laughs> wrote about it, but they identified Aleppo as Raqqa. The unofficial ISIS the capital. ISIS capital, and, and then, then they, in the process yeah. of correcting that, they identified Aleppo as the capital of Syria, which it is not. <laughs> yeah. So and now good, the good rare move. correction to the correction. Good move all around. Now I'm going to take the uh, contrarian position here and say that for the people of Syria. I think actually the the best outcome for them in this presidential election would be to have a president who doesn't know where Syria is or care about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think like the less someone knows, the better. The less interested they are in foreign policy. Like, thank God. Well, yeah, you know that sounds smart, but the problem is is that because as we've talked about on the show, there is a foreign policy apparatus. And you could go into the White House not giving a shit or knowing anything about Syria, but you're going to be forced to make decisions, and they're going to be on the terms of the people who do know who are going to be parts of that apparatus. Holy Basically, there's no non-fucked thing. Out, yes. There's no non-fucked yes. option. Because if fucking hayseed huckleberry Gary Johnson ambled into the White House, I guarantee you that the fucking snakes and sharks at the State Department and the Pentagon would have him infiltrating... Uh, you know, spec ops forces and bombing and maybe even a few ground troops by the end of the week because he wouldn't have any wherewithal to push back against what they were telling him. 
I mean, no, that's, but feel like that's like why you need Gary Johnson though, because he would fire all those people and replace them with Reddit moderators. <laughs> uh, like he would fire all of you, like Jamie Kerchick. All these people would be out of jobs, and they'd be like, "Jamie Kerchick, you're fired. You're being replaced by Upskirt Heisenberg from Reddit." <laughs> And he says, no, hands off Felix, Syria. Felix, I think you're exactly right in the, uh, the jur- noting the irony of a journalist who probably didn't know what Aleppo was until a couple months ago. The actual clip was Mike Barnacle quizzing oh, him on this. Mike and Barnacle. if you're telling me that that dude knew what Aleppo was six months ago, well, like, I would bet. He knows about as much about Aleppo, uh, he knows exactly as much about Syria as George Carlin did. <laughs> remember, he was the guts who got nailed for just oh for plagiarism, from, yeah. yeah, from a George Carlin book for his like sub Andy Rooney. Why do they call it getting on an airplane instead of an airplane? <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys noticed how in Aleppo you park in a driveway but drive in a parkway? <laughs> Here, here are the here are the seven words. Like <laughs> here are the seven words you can't say on a, a Syrian state television. <laughs> That's the uh, the Syrian Gary Johnson news. But um, for the listeners at home, you'll notice that this is now our three time returning champion. Derek Davison is back with us. I, I I confess I pitched this just so I could be the three time returning champion because I now, noticed that a couple of people caught my two-time record and I, I wanted to you know get back out in front yeah you're set you're the, you're driving the pace car for the <laughs> Chapo trap house uh, guests and and the lucky mid is uh, pitching a, a great topic for today's show which I think combines two very powerful threads in the Chapo trap house universe the first of which you're familiar with is breaking down and discussing at length really awful movies the second one is ripping off more successful podcasts. In this case, I'm thinking hardcore history, but we're going to do sort of a, a a really hardcore history here. Yeah, this um, is DP history. <laughs> Director of photography. Yes, yeah. this was again it's cinema is what we're talking about. <laughs> but uh, the topic for today's show, for for today's hardcore Chapo history, is Genghis Khan. Uh, and by way of the 1956 film, The Conqueror, directed by Dick Powell and starring none other than John Wayne as, as Temujin, <laughs> Temujin, the Mongol warlord who will become Genghis Khan, history's greatest conqueror and emperor. Temujin, under his heel, the cowering nations, in his arms, the unconquered woman. He took what he wanted when he wanted it. Bortai meets his fire with ice, matches his fury with flame. Your hatred will kindle into love. Before that day dawns, Mongol, the vultures will have feasted on your heart. I mean, the so, role that he was born to play. Now, uh, <laughs> this is, without a doubt, the worst casting decision in Hollywood history. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's tr- he's terrible in a way that you you can't you don't really see in Hollywood films. He's terrible in, in like a, a like Tommy Wiseau level, which in a big budget fifties prestige movie is really disconcerting and weird. 
Yeah, I mean, he he's, does I mean he's beyond terrible. I mean, the argument about whether John Wayne was a good actor or not, I mean, I think you can make a strong case that in the right context, he works, like a movie like The Searchers or something like that. But yeah, absolutely. Here, it, he is beyond... He's terrible. He's beyond awful. The remarkable thing with this movie is that he doesn't even try. Like... He doesn't even try to imagine what Genghis Khan would have been like. He just, it just seems like if you watch this movie and are like most people and can't pay attention for most of it, you would just think it's a cowboy movie where he's inexplicably dressed like an asshole. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, what they did with this film is that they, they, they had this. It's like they they knew how to do this sort of epic western movie with John Wayne very right. well. Where there's tons of horses and guys on extra, you know, tons of extras. Got people falling off horses. It's shot in the desert. It's this big kind of epic scope, and you've got John Wayne himself swaggering with all his kind of being John Wayne. Except they said it in the but 12th like, century. <laughs> there, there's a reason why John Wayne always plays the white cowboy in those movies and not. John Wayne the Native is good in, in, in a lot of movies. He's made a lot of classic movies, but essentially he always plays John Wayne. And in this movie, yeah. he's playing a 12th century <laughs> Mongolian. Like, that would be bad, obviously, in any context. And obviously, with him in the fake Asian makeup, with I don't know if they gave him squilly eyes. I don't even know if he had he makeup. Just, he just had a, a like the Fu Manchu mustache. They gave him like slant, kind of slanty eyebrows. <laughs> yes. But what it is is that they they give him this like fa- faux classical dialogue. Oh right. my Which god! Is really, where it all falls apart, and where it becomes just brutally unwatchable, is just like watching him try to get his way through these lines. I mean, he's like either really struggling or lines that he can't do. He can't. He can't speak that many words in a row. It's it's he does the John Wayne voice, but instead of saying things like "saddle up, partner," he's saying things like. While I live, my blood burns hot, and the daughter of the Tartars is not safe in my tent. Partner, Let's talk about the dialogue. Can because I say, the, like, what well, can I say? This, this is my fear about us uh, reviewing this: is that, like, the the greatest own you could do on this movie is to just play his lines of dialogue, yeah. like his delivery. And I don't know. Hopefully, Brendan can, can do that justice. Yeah, like, no matter yeah. because it's. Um, <laughs> You can't really it is, it is. You can't. You return empty-handed from the chase, my son? Not so, fine gazelle. I'm brave suitor, would you desert your bride unkissed? I share your taste in women, target type, but not in blood. He's like... The best way. now is the time for feasting and much rejoicing. My, 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 uh, my, my favorite thing about the dialogue is that it seems like... They, they were half trying to write how they would think that Mongols would talk and then the other half they were trying to reestablish characters so like for instance when jo- when he returns from Tartar ca- captivity one of my favorite scenes in the movie uh, and his you know his mom is there his mom, who's like as old as John Wayne at this point. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was great. She goes, that was great. Oh, oh, man. oh, she goes, oh, Temujin, my son, who is born to me, you have returned to me from this awful captivity. And John Wayne goes, ah, mother, who is no, birthed me. No, Felix, it was even better. He said, 
Mother, you didn't suckle me to be captive by Tartars, but to slay them. <laughs> it's so good. It's a, for the first scene on. A fair prize, my son, if my eyes see well. Fairer than you know, my mother. Pause for a second. Before we break down, get into the film itself, I'm hoping Derek can actually give us some real background and, and, and set the context for what... The, the world that Temujin, a.k.a. the man who would be Genghis Khan, came out of in sort of the, I don't know, uh, 13th, 12th century uh, Gobi Desert area. Derek, what's, what's sort of like the, the historical context for the real Genghis Khan and the world this film is supposedly set in? Okay, so um, this is roughly corresponds to the places we would think of today as Mongolia, Siberia, and the Gobi Desert. These are, you know, it's it's a region that's controlled by a lot of small nomadic tribes that are exist on the periphery primarily of Chinese society. One of the tribes is the group that we know as the Mongols, and then there are others. There's the um, the tar the Tatars, not Tartars, contrary to uh, John Wayne. Uh, it's like the sauce, Pilgrim. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I remember it. <laughs> so, um, the, the you know there's the the Americans who you encounter in a very bastardized form in the movie, um, and the the Karai. I kept thinking of them as the, the the meerkats. Right there, you go. There you go. <laughs> and so you know they exist on the periphery of uh, I should I should say northern Chinese society because at this point China is not uh, unified. It had been unified for centuries before this period, but uh, that unity broke down. And in fact, it's the Mongols that that. Uh, reunify China and it stays that way for the you know to the present day actually I, I'm gonna if you really want me to be pedantic I'll say his name Genghis is is a total corruption of his name what's the, what's his real name his real name is Temujin I mean that was his birth name but he's given the title Chinggis Khan when he defeats the other tribes and unites them into this uh, great step uh, confederation and nobody's quite sure, A, what the title means. There are a couple of theories. The other thing nobody knows is how it became corrupted into Genghis. Well, I want to get into how what the what the Persians think of him a little bit later. Okay. Because uh, it's a slightly different view, but for, for our purposes, I'm going to stick with the Chapo tradition of badly Ding. mangling Ding. Uh, people's names. Especially, especially in the context of this movie. Uh, right. I think we, we're fine with Genghis. All right, so I think we kind of get the idea how John Wayne was so, like, uh, yeah, of course I should play uh, Genghis Khan. He was a horse guy. I play horse guys. He was righteous. <laughs> I play righteous guys. He was a man's man. The story, I mean, the story of the about this is that uh, he was on, like, the end of his run with RKO Pictures. And he was, you know, trying to figure out what movie to make. And he's in the director's office. And the director had this script sitting on his desk. I uh, <clears throat> Supposedly, like, as a pause on the way to the trash can. Like, he was <laughs> literally going to throw this thing out. They had talked about, like, there, there, I mean, the, the online trivia about this movie, you could do a whole two-hour show about that on its own. But supposedly they were looking at Marlon Brando 
to play Genghis Khan, which I think would have been just as that bad. That would have been almost as bad. Yes. That would have been amazing. <laughs> that been amazing. <laughs> Can you imagine the fucking uh, method acting horseshit he would have done to Pelican? Yeah. Because this is like before he got fat and stopped giving a shit. It he would have died, though. Marlon Brando would have died method acting to play Genghis Khan because he would have moved to the Gobi Desert. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, drank all Tried that mare's milk and then <laughs> yeah. got an infection or something. I'm only allowing myself to eat lambs that I capture myself. So the, the story is that Wayne saw this script on uh, the on a, the director's desk, and like the director had left the room for a second, and I guess forgot that he left the script sitting there. And Wayne picked it up, and I guess the director tried to talk him down from <laughs> no, doing dear. this. And Wayne was like, "No, this is the one I want to do. This looks good," and that's it. And you couldn't, I mean, you know, John Wayne was the biggest star in Hollywood. They couldn't tell him no. Someone should have told him no. <laughs> so, God, that guy ran the whole world. Looks, Sounds about right. Sounds Don't like the kind of story I should be doing. It is an omen, my son. What woman's talk is this, my mother? So, he, so th- that's the world of Hollywood in the 1950s. We've established the world of sort of the Gobi Desert and that sort of northern uh, frontier of the Chinese uh, Empire in the 12th century. And that is the world that this this film opens in, except it is the Utah Desert standing in for the Gobi Desert, which will be important later in the discussion. But just for now, let's talk the the film opens and we see a, you know, a caravan being led through the desert of and this is the uh, the the Mirkat, uh chieftain is bringing home his new bride, uh, Bortai, daughter of the Tartar, uh, played by Susanna Hayward. And who do, who comes across him but John Wayne, Temujin, and his blood brother Jamuga. Now they say the name Temujin and Jamuga. I would say no less than 60 times in, in the screenplay of this movie. It's a name that's said over and over again, and it doesn't get any less ridiculous the more you hear it in this context. And you stand with them? Or is your faith, my brother? I was to bring under my standard all the tribes of the Gobi. None would dare stand against me. Was not that once your dream for me, Jamuga? So, Temunjin is the Mongol chieftain, and he comes across uh, a, a rival gang essentially going through his territory with a woman who uh, catches his fancy and uh, from from the get go this uh, Susanna Hayward playing Bortai she's saucy she's a She's a she's a she's got a lot of backtalk for her, you know. She's the the basically a princess in in this context, and she's just been betrothed to this this you know, uh, a basically a, a sort of fuckboy, a twelfth century fuckboy. <laughs> yeah, and she's none too impressed with him, and she's got lots of backtalk for him and for Temunjin when he shows up. So I just want to say, like the 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 first appearance of of Temujin. I think is a clarion call or a, a sign of Hollywood's commitment to anti-ageism because these are events that happened when Temujin was probably about 25 years old, but he's being played by a 50-year-old white man. <laughs> and I, I applaud the casting choice here on the, to not well, allow John Wayne's advanced age. Now, wait, wait. 
<laughs> now, when you watch this movie, one of the first things you will be struck by is the fact that all of the actors look extremely white, and the few that don't look Mexican. Because they are Mexican. <laughs> Because <laughs> they were Mexican, and it's like this is—they were just—they had everything set to make a big Western movie, but just with really, really bad costumes, yeah, and nothing about like, it looks right. Everybody's got that like beefy '50s character actor look. They look like they should be wearing slacks up around their armpits. Yeah, but they're wearing—they're—they're the, the, they're supposed to be like hard-riding nomads. Yeah, uh, that was the big thing I noticed. I mean, I really love 1950s men's physiques. Uh, we, we were supposed to believe that these were people who traveled, you know, incredible distances on horseback, hunted, used bow and arrow, uh, and they all just had those, like, weird triangular f- tits that, like, men in the 50s got for some yes. reason. Probably, well, my favorite yeah. guy was... My favorite guy was the guy who plays uh, Temujin's actual older brother, who's just a big fat ass, and he's, but he's the strongest guy. He's the strongest, he's the strongest guy in all of the Gobi Desert, well, was, and he like bends iron, and then he's like, ah, oh, give me more food. That was 1950s. <laughs> my, my brawn has thirst. That was 1950s sports nutrition, though. Like, if you were really fat, they were like, holy shit, this guy's so big. Let's watch him pick up a triangular weight that says 100 pounds on it. <laughs> the best, this guy's the yeah. best athlete. We have to make him play Genghis Khan's older brother. Yeah. 1950s Rich Piana would just like not work out. He would just eat until yeah, he weighed 150 pounds. All right, so it's another fucking episode of Bigger by the Day. I have got my motherfucking whole milk. And I have got my white bread. And we are basically gonna get strong as fuck. A lot of people say that after you eat all this shit, you should go to the motherfucking gym. They are wrong. You just have to pick up a triangular barbell. The the action of the movie starts when John Wayne, I mean, Temujin decides for himself and his blood brother, Jamuga, that, um... My blood wants the Tartar woman, and now it's time for action. And he decides to get get his boys together and do a raid on the the Murkat chieftain and take his take his bride and and her dowry for himself. And that's exactly what he does. He he sets upon the caravan, and um, and what I like is that it, it sort of sets the tone for. I don't know how rapey this movie is. Yeah, is that he, uh, rape. extraordinary rapey. <laughs> yes. Extended rape. Followed by Stockholm Central. Uh, yes. Yeah. He uh, he he rips Susanna Hayward's like like you know toga oh, off oh, immediately, yeah. and then laughs and is like, ha, 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 "You'll be sleeping in my tent from now on." But um, so the 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 Murkat chieftain vows revenge, but he takes uh, Bortai for himself back to back to his tent and his village. Uh, immediately starts beef with uh you know one one of the other big tribes. You know. The lesson in the movie is, you know, don't trust these these Tartar thotties because she starts scheming immediately to to turn his blood brother Jamuga against him. This is the point where we get the first of two extended aren't these Orientals so exotic and interesting. Listen to their music and their dancing scenes. <laughs> like right there's a there's a there's a longer one later on, but this is the first one. And you get wonderful lines like Dance for Temujin, like he says. To her, <laughs> dance for Temujin. 
<laughs> no, she was like, uh, she'll dance for Temujin. Yeah, like, and then all his boys are cheering as he, like, you know, throws her into his tent or whatever. But um, Know this, woman. I take you for wife. <laughs> he's like, uh, he's, uh, he's Gobi Desert Dan Quinn. This, the following is an apology to all women. I put one finger beneath your G-spot, Tartar woman, and I give you triple-digit orgasms. But, I mean, that, that, Derek, does this film in, in, like, in, in some way capture this sort of, uh, I don't know, ethos and culture of sort of uh, this sort of nomadic warlord culture where it's just sort of your property and people or just sort of whatever you can take for yourself basically well you know I'm I was uh, uh, kind of of two minds about this there there is a tradition uh, for better or worse in in that region of bride kidnapping uh, which even on the fringes of society in places like Kyrgyzstan still sometimes goes on today uh, so the idea that you would just cart a woman off and she's now your wife uh, is not historically inaccurate. And in fact, that happened to Borte, Genghis Khan's wife. He didn't kidnap her, but she was kidnapped from him. And then he went and, and got her back. So, I mean, yes, th that that is accurate. On the other hand, I, I felt like th this the movie goes to such an extreme to show that this is a misogynistic culture, and it's male-dominated and patriarchal. And it really says more about movies in the 1950s, I think, than what steppe culture was actually like in the 12th century. I mean, women were not completely helpless. Um, there are multiple cases in Mongolian history of the wives of Khans um, ruling as regents while the succession, because this is a, since it's a tribal um, collective culture, uh, succession is not as simple as uh, father to son. Everybody has to get together when a Khan dies and they have to elect a new Khan, and that may be the old Khan's son, but it, not necessarily. And so there's a lag time in between the death of any Khan and the election of the his successor. And generally speaking, the pattern was that uh, the wife, or the widow, I guess, more appropriately, of the old Khan would run the empire as regent until the new Khan was elected. So I think it overplays, even, even though there's an accurate portrayal of the the concept of you know carting a woman off and, and kidnapping her and marrying her uh, it it sort of over plays its hand in terms of how hostile to women this culture was I I, I think the uh, the screenwriter and, and, and the filmmakers were definitely uh, winking and having a little bit too much fun with the idea of the idea that you know women were property, and I think at one point uh, Temujin's mother says because she hates the Tartars because the Tartars killed her husband and Temujin's father, and she was like the Tartar wench. 
throw her to your slaves and let their and let them make sport of her, you know. But but what, but the movie is still in that kind of 1950s romantic context where it's often like the woman hates the guy at first and is disgusted by him because he's a brute and right. a jerk. But then like slowly but surely he wears her down. Yeah, yeah, he wears her down, and then she realizes she loves him, and that's basically what what goes on in this yeah, movie. Yeah, he's, he's I mean, doing. But he does rape her a few times before that happens. He does. Yeah, and yeah, there's no, like, it's not clear how he wears her down, except that we're supposed to believe that he's got such animal magnetism that she just can't resist. I mean, just look at him in the movie. Like, how could <laughs> just like just this guy, like a guy with like stick arms, whose face looks like ham with mascara drawn on it. Uh, but uh, no, His he does. Torso feel- looks like he's wearing one of those barrels. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It very man as women liked at the time but he was doing PUA to her he was doing PUA to Tardar woman he was naming her <laughs> by killing her husband and making her a captive forever and uh, being like I'll show you when I crush your loins like that was PUA Felix. then that's a really good point. He do, he doesn't. There's an excellent negging scene where Derek, you brought this up before with the uh, the sort of orientalism of an exoticism of the movie. My favorite scene in the movie is when they go visit um, Wang Kong in the city. Yes. Wang Kong in the city of Urga, like you know, Temujin is trying to create an alliance with like sort of this fat cat who is a little bit richer because he actually has a walled city and isn't just living in tents. Right. This you shall pay for tenfold. We march against the Tartar. With Wang Khan? With the legions of Wang Khan and the Mongol clans, I gather. What folly do I hear? We march against Kumlik. Wang Khan is a a real historical figure, actually. He, he, He was the agent... Of the Jin, the the Northern Chinese Emperor. Yeah, and uh, he also like, as you can see in the movie, like he thinks he's better than John Wayne, just because he has a city with an economy instead of a series of tents and sexual assaults. (laughs) (laughs) But he 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 does inspire my I think my favorite line in the movie, which is I mean we're not there yet, but. There's a point at which uh, Temujin has made an alliance with Wang Khan that's being kind of manipulated surreptitiously by Wang Khan's uh, shaman. And so at one point, he's waiting, Temujin is waiting for Wang Khan to show up with his soldiers so they can go attack the Tartars. And uh, they're not coming. I mean, it's clear that they're not coming, like they've double-crossed him. And one of his men off camera says he let himself be tricked by Wang. (laughs) (laughs) Which puts us, I think, into a whole gay subtext thing. Derek is right. This is the biggest gay subtext (laughs) reveal since in Les Miserables when Javert says, before I knew you, Valjean, I only knew a straight line. This is... We learn that the conqueror is about one thing, and it is about conquest of other males. It's rare that a uh, guest finds the sexual pathology theme, but this is why Derek is a three. This is why Derek is a three-time returning champion. Now the the way these things go, MVP. No, but uh, I, I. What I also like about the 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 Wang Kong character is that he also fulfills that kind of nice uh, sort of nineteen fifties 
Hollywood archetype of just just a big fat man who's sort of jolly and foolish. That's what I liked about I his miss character. That in movies like we need to bring that back. Just like the like. I don't know, like the next Bradley Cooper movie called like Waiting for Tuesday where he like has to <laughs> fucking date a woman who's a lawyer and depressed or some shit. Like there should just be an extended scene where he like knows someone he has to like do chores for some jolly fat man. Like why not? Just like bring it in. It's body positivity now. It's woke. It's woke to have that now. We don't really have like, yeah. Peter Houston off fat guy anymore. Like, yeah. Sort of like droll chubster. Who's always sitting <laughs> in that chair, just stuffing his yeah. face and doing quips? It would, be, it, would be, it would be woke to bring that back because, like, fat people in movies now, they're just like sassy sidekicks. But, like, it's woke to have fat people representation where they're like powerful and can just like sit and eat grapes all day and assign like foolish tasks to our heroes and double cross them. Yeah, that's social but, justice. Uh, like, back to uh, my favorite scene in the movie is when uh, Temujin is being feted at the, at the city of Urga and he, he's brought along uh, Bortai with him because he's like, I can't leave her back in the tent because there's a whole subtext in this movie where he keeps thinking over and over again at about three times in this movie that his blood brother Jamuga has become his Eskimo brother if you know what I'm saying but um, so he's brought Bortai on, on this trip with him and they're being feted at the, the court of Wang Khan and they're treated to a really long and ludicrous um, dance sequence where they bring in all of these uh, sort of exotic lady dancers who again are all just white studio <laughs> extras dressed in ludicrous costumes doing this kind of like you know pseudo oriental belly dancing I guess but back to the the negging thing like you know Timujen is like you know his blood is hot looking at all these women and you can see Bortai getting angry because she's like she hates him but she's also jealous and uh, Temujin says to Wang Khan, he's like, don't bother with the Tartar woman. She sees their, their arts and their ways of lovemaking, and it makes her jealous because she can't do the same. And then, of course, Bortai take us, takes up the challenge immediately and then just grabs some sort of, like, veil, and she finally dances for Temujin in front of everybody and does her own sexy little routine. Yeah, Temujin, like, he may not do, like, a lot of really good conquering in this movie, but he invented Piuet. Like, he invented <laughs> all of those moves. It's the only thing he conquers is, is her heart. Yeah. I, there, there are two or three, I think, times in this movie where he literally leaves a fight to go chase after her on horseback. And, I, you know, if you want to talk about things that are historically inaccurate, I think that's the place to start. Yeah, how far would Genghis Khan have gotten if he was just like got so horny that he got distracted in battle? Right. <laughs> history is history is actually littered with generals who were overly horny, but yeah, they all end up getting killed. Yeah, they don't like they don't conquer everything. No. Like in history, in, his, in history, Genghis Khan, the only reason he didn't conquer Japan was because of tsunami. Uh, but really, like, from this movie, this movie is more historically accurate than the history books. 
he got horny again. He <laughs> like captured <laughs> like, another woman that hated him. He <laughs> was like, ah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take you to, the, I'm gonna insult you in front of my friends. Yeah, the, the, this whole movie it just like breaks down his, his sort of rise to power as a series of really petty kind of like family squabbles and his attempts to impress some ginger woman. <laughs> Mother Earth has been feeling unsatisfied I'd say it's playing from the rain The sweet lady has started to cry Fires crackle and blaze And the rays of a burning heart And I don't think it's more to Lay and wait for the day That she dies in her arms We gotta do something We gotta do something before Mother Earth gets any more hurt, we gotta do something. Okay, where I want to go now is, Derek, like, so, Chimujin managed to go from being sort of the, the son whose father was killed of sort of an also-ran tribe in the midst of these very disorganized, warring tribes in, in the Gobi Desert. He's manages to unite all of them and turn them into this sort of unbelievable sort of civilizational weapon of mass destruction that set out across most of the known world and just wiped entire civilizations off the map. And what I want to know is what about sort of the culture or technology or tactics of the Mongols made them so unbelievably formidable and horrifying to every civilization that they came across. So there's two things. One is uh, the, the the thing that was sort of innate to Mongolian culture or steppe culture, I don't want to say Mongolian culture, that made them so threatening uh, in a pitched battle was that they were uh, so good at mounted archery, uh, which was not they didn't invent mounted archery. I mean, the, the Huns were were mounted archers way back in, you know, the the fifth century in Europe. Um, but the Mongols combined mounted archery with latest, I guess, uh, innovations in bow making technology, and so they had these very powerful um, these very powerful weapons that could penetrate. Uh, armor. They could shoot an arrow through armor. These were not. These were not like what we think of of the medieval longbow. No, right? they, these they were. These were much more compact, sort of right. smaller, and something that you could fire. I mean, they had any to be angle moving. You yeah, you couldn't. You you can't use a longbow from from horseback. So you have to. It has to be shorter. But where a longbow generates its draw power from just from the fact that it's that long and there's. Uh, a lot of you know uh, resistance built into that. Uh, the Mongols used what's called a composite bow, uh, which laminated. You know, it was like a wooden base, and then you would laminate bone and sinew, uh, and eventually you create this very strong, uh, very hard to bend, and therefore very powerful bow that can that that doesn't have to be long uh, to produce a lot of draw power. Uh, and can therefore be used from horseback. And so, 
they had the combination of these bows with mounted archery, which was historically a difficult uh, tactic for peoples of settled societies in uh, Europe, in the Middle East, in China to deal with. Uh, because you can do, you do. They used to do a lot of hit and run, and you know when you're relying on infantry, or even later when you're relying on heavy cavalry, uh, it's hard to adjust to these very quick, you know, run up, shoot a volley of arrows at your flank, and then uh, we're gonna ride off before you have a chance to adjust or do anything about it. So that was one. I mean, it's the the mounted archery and the the bows that they used were one thing, and the second thing is that the Mongols were. I think you could argue the most adept um, adopters of other people's military techniques and, or tactics and, and technologies, uh, maybe in, in all of history. They had nothing innately. I mean, you know, Mongolia, the steppe culture, there were no cities, there were no walled cities, so you didn't learn siegecraft. And this was a big problem for for... Genghis Khan and his army when they first uh, invaded China in the you know in the early 13th century was how how to knock down these city walls and get into the the cities and and loot them um, but they learned very quickly once they you know managed to capture some Chinese engineers and a few pieces of Chinese siege weaponry. Uh, they learned very quickly how to use them. They learned very quickly what tactics made sense when you're attacking a city. And they, they were just, that was it. I mean, they, they, were, they were experts suddenly in, in siege warfare. I mean, they just absorbed every, you know, everything that they came across that uh, looked like it, uh, it, you know, it offered them some kind of advantage. In his lifetime, how far east did Temujin make it? So Temujin conquers uh, the northern Chinese kingdom, the, the Jin uh, kingdom. Starts to, now the so southern China, you know, central and southern China was ruled by the Song dynasty. And the, in his lifetime, they, the Mongols uh, advanced into Song territory, but they didn't get very far before they were, um, their attention was drawn west. Uh, so he conquered. I mean, you know, as, as far if east as uh, the Pacific, but not as far south as they would later get. Kublai Khan and uh, well, Kublai primarily is uh, the one who gets credit for conquering the rest of China and Korea and uh, Southeast Asia, Tibet. Uh, places like that. When did he marry Daenerys Targaryen? Because <laughs> <laughs> I know at that. some point she, they get married and then she burns his body after Well, he the dies. dragons, yes. Absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. then then her new... He comes back from the dead. He meets with Loretta Lynch on the plane. And... <laughs> uh, now, his... I mean, his relationship with Borte is somewhat... Well, we don't know if it's unique. I mean... Nobody was keeping careful records of people's marriages on the step at this time in history, uh, but it seems to be unique in that um, he married her, and as I said, she was then kidnapped uh, by the Merkits, the 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 tribe that she's supposedly arranged to marry into in the movie is the tribe that kidnaps her after she's married. Uh, 
Temujin. Um, and he goes and gets her back, and that seems to be a fairly unique uh, event in, uh, you know, on the steps in, 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 you know, in 12th century step society, to go and get your wife back after she's been kidnapped. Uh, uh, ladies, get you a man who can fire an arrow from a horseback, that's and it. we'll come get yeah. you if you've been stolen. Yeah, um, I mean, look, look how much times have changed. Like now, it's a bad thing to quote unquote save a hoe. <laughs> <laughs> this is like what made, Genghis Khan made his name by saving a hoe. Unbelievable. Before we get back into the uh, the the film itself and uh, wrap that up, I, I the other thing I want to ask you about is you know he's obviously. The, as the title of the film says, you know, an amazing conqueror, you know, uh, this great emperor. But, you know, what he started and then, I mean, they killed a phenomenal number of people. Like, they, they would just put everyone to the sword, right, if they took a city. Well, they they tried not to... Uh, they, what they would do is the sort of standard procedure was to... You go into a place... And you take one city and just thoroughly obliterate it, and hope that word of mouth gets around. And so the next city you come to is going to say, "Well, I don't, I don't want any part of that. You know, we'll just surrender and, and do business with you guys." Um, so unless they were provoked, uh, they they weren't out to just sort of slaughter everybody. They were really out to do business. Uh, and there's there's a lot of emphasis in. Uh, you know, sort of later Mongolian history about trade and commerce and making sure that, um, you know, there was safe passage for people to go from one end of the Mongolian world to the other, uh, and especially for them to go to sort of uh, Karakoram and the, the, you know, the, the sort of central part of Mongolia, the, the, the heart of the, the empire. Um, Wasn't he the first person to put this the entire Silk Road under uniform control? Uh, yes. Of, of yeah, well, okay, so, I mean, he died before they really, you could really say that, I think. But but certainly his His legacy. I mean, his legacy yeah. is that, that uh, you know, by, by the, at the, at its greatest extent, uh, you would have been able to get from China all the way to the Mediterranean and never leave Mongolian territory. Now, you would pass through uh, different khanates, and by, you know, the late 13th century, they're, they're not really, in any real sense, uh, under the same umbrella anymore, politically. Uh, but they would still, you know, there was still sort of this continuity of, of purpose, that, that for, especially for, for commercial activity, that you could get from one end to the other without, uh, now, without a problem. According to you, they were strictly business, but well, not strictly. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know. They also pretty much nuked the cities of uh, modern day, what is now Kiev or Kiev, as uh, Adrian said. Yes, uh, ba- Baghdad, um, almost all of the Persian steppe. Eternal skies, yes, a guy, my father, hear me. Summon the spirits of heaven to my aid. Send me men, men. So there were, ex- I mean, there were certainly places that they had to, like Ki- Kiev. They they raided uh, originally. It was part of uh, 
what was just an extended raid. I mean, it wasn't a mission of conquest. It was an extended raid around the Caspian Sea. One of the more remarkable military feats of, of all time, actually. Um, How so? Well, I mean, there was... Right around the time after they conquered and defeated uh, the Khwarazmians, who were the the sultanate that ruled Central Asia and uh, most of Iran at this point, after they had defeated them, uh, two of of Genghis Khan's generals uh, asked him for permission to go on a raid into the Caucasus. I mean, you know, what we know as the Caucasus. Um, And it turned into... Um, basically, they started in sort of northern Iran and rode up around the Caucasus into modern-day Ukraine, sort of western Russia, around the Caspian Sea. I mean, if you you know look at a map of the Caspian Sea, it's huge. It's it's you know it's it's uh, the biggest lake. In, in the world and they rode north through here and all the way around the Caspian Sea and all the way back to Mongolia and they had nothing I mean they had no supply lines they had no chance of reinforcement it was like 20,000 soldiers and you know it, they they managed this incredibly uh, long distance ride um, and and you know didn't didn't suffer for it at all um, so that you know, they, they their first encounter with the Kievans Rus uh, was on this raid, and they really had no intention of staying. They just wanted to sack the city and you know take what they could cart off. Um, and then there were other exceptions. I mean, you know, Baghdad was the still the seat of the caliph, and uh, there were reasons why you know politically you they needed to uh, you know conquer Baghdad and, and sort of teach the lesson. Cities that. Uh, surrendered to the Mongols peacefully and then later on started to make problems could expect to be obliterated um, so there were there were a lot of you know I don't want to downplay the violence because there was a lot of violence and a lot of killing um, but <laughs> in doing in, but a in lot just... of it especially especially if you you know if you know the story about why they um, Started their conquests going in the, in going to the west, heading in that direction. Um, a, a, some of it is sort of uh, they felt that the the fight was forced upon them, like they didn't have in, any interest in you know sort of killing these people or you know conquering these places. They wanted to do commercial business, and yet they were presented with these situations uh, the the decision to invade Central Asia and, and Iran comes because uh, the, the, the Sultan the, uh, the Khwarazm Shah uh, and his fail son cousin, I think fail cousin uh, <laughs> you know Genghis sends envoys to them and says you know hey let's have a, you know I'm not interested in conquering you I, I just I'm over here doing my thing in China I would like to have a deal where we can you know do some trading and everybody makes a little money and they killed his envoys and this is a big no-no I mean you know bad move anytime in history you you don't do this you don't kill envoys 
it's an insult and they take it as an insult and so much so that they pick up and you know start heading west they give up the you know don't give up but you know they stop focusing on china and they head west and they just demolish these guys i mean it was you know it's the, one of the, I, the worst blunders uh, in in middle eastern history was you know this decision to not engage with the mongols but instead to antagonize in doing a little bit of uh, research to prepare for this show, uh, I discovered a factoid that said um, it's estimated that they killed between 10 and 15 million people in what is you know now Iran or the Persian steppe, and that it took uh, until the 20th century for the uh, population to recover to what it once was at the time before the Mongols arrived. That's, yeah, I think that's... The- uh, that's what I value your good wishes, shaman, for all your doubt of my report last night. Now, I I learned this from uh, the War Nerd podcast, so I'm going to steal it from them and pass it along to you. Uh, credit must credit John Dolan, but he said that in ISIS in Dabiq magazine, the official magazine of ISIS. They recently ran an article about the Mongol invasion of Baghdad, sort of the point of which was, well, times seem tough now, but they've been tough before, and, you know, just grin and bear it, because... <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah, learn, okay, learn, learn how to make success out of failure. The Abbasid Caliphate didn't survive the Mongol sack of Baghdad, so I don't know what the ISIS Caliphate is going to do. Uh, to hang on because th- I don't know if that's the best analogy. <laughs> uh, Baghdad still. Well, like, they're not Derek, no- Derek, it's like uh, Olympus has fallen. That was the original. Was Baghdad has fallen, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the caliphate, the caliphate agent Mike Banning was like, a thousand years from now, we're still gonna fucking be here. Well, to, to return to the, the 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 fictionalized version of Temujin. To the John Wayne Temujin and and the film The Conqueror, I mean, like you know, the film rounds out as you would expect. Um, Temujin, he 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 gets his bride. You know, he had some ups and downs, but if, you know, he comes out on top. He unites all the clans and like kills sort of the end of the as a yeah hot, kills uh, yeah. warm up sexual warm up thing. Yeah, he he lays waste to the the, the, the Tatars, the, the Tartars, um, and he's got his woman by his side, and all of his all the men on horseback behind him, and it's just sort of like he's going off to make his way in the world and, and to conquer it. Um, but before he does, like I said, there's this weird subplot in the movie where like uh, how Bortai sort of comes between him and his blood brother Jamuga. Yes, yeah, yeah, Jamuga and. Jamuga is is loyal to Temujin the whole way through, even though there at several times I wasn't quite clear on it because I think the movie was just so bad that it was sort of difficult okay. to follow. So I have this I have this theory actually, if I can uh, interject. Oh, this, let's do it. Which is you? There's a point, and I haven't quite pinpointed it, and I don't ever want to watch the movie again to try and pinpoint it. But there is a point just shy of maybe the halfway mark in the movie where you can s- literally see everybody just say you know what fuck this and they all throw in the towel at the same time they're like this, this is shit and we know it's shit and we're not even going to try anymore like it, like there's one point at the toward the end of the movie where they literally put 
Genghis Khan, who at this point is just, I mean, there's no pretense. It's John Wayne now. It's not, there's no, he's not even trying to pretend. Lord, we believe you slain. Death comes not easy to Temujin. They put him in like a, a 1950s leather jacket with fur. Like fur lined leather jacket. <laughs> that, like that's his costume. And I just thought, okay, you've, you've really quit now, right? I mean, even your costume guy is like, fuck this. This is so bad. I'm not even going to bother. Well, there's this whole thing where, like, you know, he, he thinks that Jamuga has betrayed him, even though he hasn't. And then at the end of the movie, like, you know, he's finally become. You know the the boss of all bosses, um, you know, and you know Jamuga comes before him, and like you know, Bortai pleads for him, and she's like, "But no, he has always remained loyal to you, Temujin." But but Jamuga is having none of it, and Jamuga is like the best thing I can do, the most loyal thing I can do for you, my brother, is just kill myself. And he goes, Temujin, the worm of doubt has entered your heart. <laughs> and it would burrows deep and will never go away. Like you, he started saying, like I've helped you get to this point, but you're going on to bigger and better things, right. and I just so need he, to go away asked, and die. What he asks is to be executed in the standard sort of step way that nobles or people of noble blood are executed, which is supposed to be uh, without spilling any blood. So how would you do that? Um, and this leads to a lot of very interesting, like if you read, uh, you know, chronicles of the Mongol conquest, there's a lot of very fascinating ways that they supposedly kill people. <laughs> like Strangulation? Somebody, I, I forget who gets killed. Somebody gets killed by, like, they, they literally build a floor and put it on top of him and dance him to death. <laughs> crush him to death by dancing on the floor. The, do this. I'd imagine the that Abbasid, there would be blood. The Abbasid Caliph, when he's killed uh, in 1258, is rolled up in a rug and trampled to death by It's all oh. because there was this su- superstition that if you spilled noble blood, it would, you know, would be bad for you, and it would lead to bad things for you. So they, yeah. they went to well, these Derek, great you, lengths. Well, you raise an interesting point, because in the movie, he mentions that. He's like, I choose to die in the way of our honored forefathers, right, without shedding right. blood, so that I may counsel you in the afterlife, or something like that. And then, of course, in my mind, I'm thinking, how are they going to kill this guy without shedding his blood um, but they never showed he just sort of walks no, off into the crowd and you never see think, it they never resolve this is part of like why I think everybody had given up by this point is because the movie ends so abruptly that you're just if you're not paying attention which you probably aren't by this point because it's so bad that you've turned off your brain it's it's just sort of over like that you know they they have the climactic battle and then they're like okay we're done everything's done he's getting little gone. little bit it's of a postscript little bit of a postscript though uh he and really every single character and actual member of the crew ended up not shedding their noble blood and death well that's true oh, God. <laughs> we're not ready for that yet are we? Yeah, let's Jamuka, let's, let's get Jamuka, into. Can the, I, I I do want to give Jamuka his due, actually, if if we have a minute. Cause yeah, please. He's do. a real. Uh, I mean, he's a real character. He was he and Temujin were blood brothers at one point, which meant you know close allies basically. Um, and they fell out after the the raid to get Borte back from the Merkits, uh, and 
Jamuka started forming. I mean, you know, the movie's totally. I mean, Movie Kids is, you know, doesn't do any of this justice because Jamuka really did uh, become his rival. And at one point, when they were blood brothers, was probably the more powerful of the two of them. I mean, he was probably the senior guy in their partnership. Um, and they fall out over this, what I talked about before, Temujin's ideas about breaking up the tribes and, and giving positions of importance to people based on their ability rather than their ancestry. Jamuka doesn't believe in this. He's a big believer in the traditional aristocracy of the, uh, the steppes. Um, and that's the basis of their falling out. And that's the point where Temujin goes to uh, Wang Khan and makes uh, an alliance with him and they uh, they they take on Jamuka and, and defeat him in battle uh, and then as I you know as, like I said toward the beginning um, according to uh, the, the major source that we have on this early you know pre Genghis Khan part of Temujin's life which is called the secret history of the Mongols uh, Jamuka does basically volunteer to be executed. Uh, after he's defeated, Temujin says, you know, let's put this behind us. We can go back to being friends and allies. And Jamuka says, nah, I'm not into that. Kill me. And they do. Uh, like Kanye talks about on the best song on Life of Pablo, Real Friends. Where are your real friends at? Now, yeah, so, so Jamuga volunteers to be executed or kill himself in some way in a way that isn't resolved in the movie, but is slightly based in history. But there's a history of Genghis Khan, and then there's the history of the production of The Conqueror, which we have to mention because it is one of the, you know, darkest chapters in Hollywood lore. This is not just a bad movie that was a huge flop and embarrassment to everyone that made it. It was also quite literally deadly. And this is the reason why. This is actually one, it's one of the genuinely most disturbing things in Hollywood history. That this is like actually one of the, one of the probably the most cursed film production in all of Hollywood Babylon. Earlier, I talked about how um, the Utah desert is where they filmed uh most of this movie. It's a place called Snow Canyon, which is not far from St. George, Utah. This is relevant because very, not just, I think even just a couple of years prior to the filming of this movie, uh, Snow Canyon was downwind from a, a U.S. government test site where they detonated, I think, close to a dozen atomic bombs, the fallout of which, uh, went downwind and caked much of uh, Snow Canyon, where they filmed uh, a lot of the exteriors in this movie. Legend has it that there are even fil photographs of John Wayne on the set of this movie for the external, uh, for the, you know, exterior locations, holding a Geiger counter and uh, measuring the radiation that was just the, the ambient radiation that was still there. That in and of itself would be bad enough but what really happened, what really went wrong in this movie is the film production, um, they had to do reshoots, of course, um, on set, um, on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a lot. And they bagged the sand from Snow Canyon and brought it back with them to Hollywood and then dumped it out on a closed film set to do reshoots. 
So everyone on this film set crew was breathing in radioactive dust for much of the reshoots of this movie. And quite horribly, out of the 220 cast and crew members, 91 of them died of cancer, including John Wayne, Susan Hayward, and the guy who played Jamuga, the actor uh, Pedro Armendariz, who, uh, similar to his character, actually killed himself after he was diagnosed with terminal cancer only four years after this movie was made. You know what? I don't buy it. I don't think that it was the nuclear tests. I'm fairly certain that what killed everybody on that set was witnessing John Wayne's acting. Because <laughs> I'm other... sure that I have cancer now after I watch. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've already, I've already told every woman that follows me that I have cancer now, uh, and I shouldn't be alone uh, because John Wayne's acting. Dance for Chapo. Um, <laughs> you, you will dance for me, FIFA woman. <laughs> Show the feet, sweeties. Uh, I was born to do battle with Josh Toilet Paper Memo. I bear these scars in battle with Dow and Watson and their company. In all seriousness, though, I have to think that killing like half of the cast makes this movie objectively the worst movie ever made. Yeah, You can talk about Plan 9 and The Room and Troll 2. They didn't kill anybody. Yes. So that means the Conqueror beats them all in badness. That's literally the, yeah, lethal. It's, this is the, the most lethally bad movie ever made. And the other sort of uh, dark avenue is that this was the last film that Howard Hughes ever produced. Uh, Dracula himself and reportedly felt, quote, guilty as hell about what happened when he, you know, gave cancer to all those people, which may be, I think, the first time and only time in Howard Hughes' life where he felt guilt or remorse of any kind. I'm not sure about that. Probably. But he spent $12 million of his own money to buy up um, all of the film reels of this movie to, so that it would never be shown again. John Wayne apparently was so embarrassed by it that he... Um, it could not hear the word or name Temujin for the rest of his life without cringing. <laughs> Actually, I'm just looking here. It said, uh, looking at the trivia here, and it said, John Wayne took his role very seriously, went on a crash diet, and oh, took Dexedrine tablets, four right. tablets a day. Wait, wait, yeah. That was, so that was John Wayne on a diet? <laughs> Jesus yep, Christ. Yep, yep. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, just like the real Genghis Khan, the real Genghis Khan loved Dexies. He loved Dexies, he loved Whippets, he loved all types of uppers. How do you think you'd stay up all night to just be riding through the steppe, falcon at your wrist, conquering all the time? Yeah, today, even today, if you go to Mongolia and you you sort of like gum your teeth for residue uh, coke or uppers or Dexies, that's like a sign of respect. It's a sign of respect to like neurotically rub your nose and talk about starting a record label like Genghis Khan Yeah, it's interesting to think of what they could have done if they'd had something other than that fermented mare's milk to get fucking turned on. Imagine if they gave But they drank that stuff, man. There's so many cons that basically drank themselves to death and that was you know, that was what they were drinking. Yeah, you'd think they would have like found anything better. Like they destroyed, they destroyed all those Persians 
and didn't think to pick up any of their plum wine, like nothing. Like they ransacked all of these cultures that had amazing drugs, and they're like, "Ah, <laughs> uh, we're gonna we're gonna stick with like this shit that we like leave under the hut." Thank well, they, I mean, they eradicated the assassins who, you know, if you believe that they were smoking hashish. Yeah, man, they were they were high, yeah, dude. They're just like George Washington, and Jesus Christ, and fucking Martin Luther King. They're all smoking weed. Those alcoholic Mongols killing all of the weed smoking assassins. That's just that's like it, how yeah. the alcohol lobby is what's keeping weed illegal in the United States. It's just <laughs> yeah. history repeating itself. Hell yeah, bitch. Okay, guys. Closing thoughts on the Conqueror and Temujin, the historical figure. Uh, he was a reformer with results, as we said, and I respect that. I mean, you know, you got to break a few million skulls to make an omelet. So there you go. I give him hashtag respect for that. He was a liquid playboy. And you know, he's but, uh, you know they they do the they've done DNA testing that suggests that he's fathered like a half a percent of all the men on the planet are descended in some way from from Genghis Khan. I heard it's it. Like, I heard it's everyone with a B blood type can be traced yeah, to Genghis Khan in some way. Playboy, right there. I, I got my I got my twenty three and me last year, and it turns out I have some Central Asian Halio groups, and I don't like to jump to conclusions, but I'm a direct descendant. <laughs> of Genghis Khan <laughs> and because Genghis Khan was the most powerful POC in history that makes me like one of the greatest POC that any of you know there you go yeah <laughs> I would say that were it not for Temujin and his his hordes killing probably I don't know 40 to 50 million people in the yeah. 12th and 13th centuries I think they have done the math on this, and had that not happened, there would be about an extra two billion people on the planet today. So, also, history's first environmentalist. Environmental yeah, 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 get them out of there. Get them out of there. Good work. But as for the movie, uh, don't watch it. Okay. No, 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 like, no, no. It was literally, yeah, as you said, the worst movie ever if you, made. If you go it's online, like if you go on YouTube and you can find the trailer for this movie, the, it says... It's Titanic in scope and Titanic in spectacle and Titanical, uh, Titanic in action. And I think if you just focus on Titanic, like that's a pretty apt description <laughs> for this movie. It is the Titanic <laughs> of, of It movies. killed about the same amount of people. Yeah. Oh, yes, <laughs> yeah, literally. Fuck yeah. Uh, Temujin, Derek, Davison. Our blood is hot for you. You are a blood. You are a blood brother, Derek Davison, blood brother to Chapo. You you will ride with us, Falcon at your wrist across the steps. If we had other guests on as often as Derek has ridden alongside of us, then we'd say that we had four hosts on this ride through the Gobi Desert. Blood brother Derek, and to my my fellow cons, Felix and Matt. Let's let's say goodbye for this episode. Goodbye and let us die without spilling our blood. Yes. Until next time, guys. Peace. Thanks, guys. When I was at Notre Dame, they called me a brother trapped in white skin. I got more talent than you, and you know what? After I kicked your ass, you better be cool or I might fucking just take your goddamn woman from you. Peace. For while I have fingers to grasp a sword, 
and eyes to see, your treacherous head is not safe on your shoulders, nor your daughter in her bed. <laughs>